Okay, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. We have no time to, to lose. We're going to go over this entire chapter. Paul, woot woot. What time are we going to be done? I will get you out of here for sure by dinner time. Yeah. <laughs> Buckle up. Um, Hebrews chapter 8, I'm just going to start by reading it. Um, now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for, for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. I'm in verse 7 now. For if there had, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Jesus, guide us through this. I pray that it would be um, from your mouth to our ear. God, would you, um, Lord, I just confess, my heart gets hard, and sometimes I can't hear things because my heart just gets hard, or my conscience gets numb, or whatever it is. Would you open me up again this morning? I, I want to be the first to receive of this feast. Lord, I, I, wanna, I wanna come before you with an open heart and an open mind to hear from you and to be convicted and, and um, brought to you again and again and again. Thank you, Lord. I pray that we'd all have that, that you'd do that with all of us. Lord, speak to us. Even maybe we're here not really expecting to be spoken to. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us. And for those that are watching, for those that are at home, or in their car, or wherever they're at, that this would be an, an encounter from you, an encounter of you, um, an unexpected joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, the first verse in this text is telling us the point of this entire chapter, and it's the, very, it's the same point that he's been making this for the entire book. Um, so here it is. The chapter is the summary. This chapter is the summary 
of the main theme and point that he's been talking about this entire time. One of the first things you'll notice when you look carefully at the book of Hebrews is all of the comparisons. It's a rhetorical device, a literary device of comparing the old and the new. The writer's constantly comparing the status quo with the gospel or certain understandings, philosophies, ideologies, traditions. He's comparing those things with the gospel. He starts the book, by, for example, by comparing the way God used to speak to mankind with the way he speaks now through his son. He compares other prophets, leaders, spiritual people um, to Jesus. He then compares angels to Jesus. If you remember, remember that, he compares then different people in their past to Jesus, like Moses. He compares ancient Israel to New Testament believers. He compares the old priesthood to the new priesthood. And this chapter is no different. Uh, We're going to see a lot of different comparisons. And if you read through it again, you'll notice that he's doing a lot of comparing. And throughout the book, this leaves you with the impression that Jesus is better than everything. And that there's nothing better that's going to come after Jesus. He, this is, he's it. He's the newer model, I guess. You, that's one of the impressions that you'll come away from. He's the newer, better, more advanced model. Therefore, you think Jesus came to start a new kind of, of religion, a perfect religion, the best religion on, on the planet. <clears throat> but then we come to this chapter, and we start to realize that we still don't have it right. We're still not getting it. It's even bigger than that. It's even more than that. Um, When I started studying this, um, I got to this this chapter. Always, it kind of blew my it blew through the glass ceiling in my mind. I thought, okay, I pretty much got it. And this chapter showed it's it's bigger than what I'm still thinking. Too small about this. Um, You're going to begin to realize when we get through this, and hopefully as I lead you through this that Jesus is much bigger than you ever imagined. For example, let's start, by, let's start by looking at verse 13. That's a good place to start. He says, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And when you start to understand the implications of that sentence, you're going to realize that we're still thinking too small. It's even, even bigger than we, than we realize. It's more revolutionary than what we, we might have already thought. The writer of this book has been trying to say all along that Jesus did not come to start a new religion. He didn't even come to start the best religion. Uh, Jesus came to destroy religion, period. He came to get rid of it. He came to make it completely obsolete. To embrace Jesus Christ is to embrace the end of religion. That's what he's saying. It's a move away from all religion in general. So today, I'm, we have a lot to cover, but I'm going to break it down into three bite-sized pieces. Okay, here's our meal. Religion is the default mode of every human heart. I hope to prove that to you today. Religion is the default mode of every human heart. It's the stock operating system that we've got. Secondly, Jesus came to end it. He came to destroy it. Thirdly, he came to give a radical new covenant relationship with God. An entire different thing. A whole different structure. First, we need to understand that religion is the default mode. Like I said, the stock operating system of every human heart. But first, let's define our terms. What is religion? Um, Over the years, I've heard 
debates, and I've heard, well, I've heard different streams of thought that seem to be opposite. Uh, on the one hand, people say that all religions are basically the same. Maybe you've heard that. All religions are basically the same. Or, and then you've got another camp of folks that say, no, religions are very different. They're diversely different. And actually, both statements are true in some ways. Um, all religion is unified on a few things. There are some, there are some things that all religion, religions agree on. And at the same time, they're enormously different and enormously diverse. Let me try to break it down. All religions, generally speaking, have two main philosophical components. First, as Francis Schaeffer, Francis Schaeffer in his book, um, uh, How Then Shall We Now Live? It's a great book. He tells us that all religions believe that behind all the particulars of life, there is a universal or universals that give those particular things meaning. Okay, Behind all the particular things of life, there's something bigger than that. Behind it all, an ultimate reality with a capital R that gives all of our mundane particular things a lot of meaning in life. There is some transcendent power above or behind all of nature. And this power, religion would say, all religion would say, cannot be reduced by science or naturalism or empirical data. It can't be reduced by that. Behind all the realities of nature, there is an ultimate reality. Okay? Um, C.S. Lewis talks about this in the Abolition of Man, in his book, The Abolition of Man. He calls it, the, what all religions have in common, he calls it the Tao. All religions believe in the Tao, the idea of an absolute or universal that gives all the particular things in life, infuses them with meaning, with purpose. That's the first thing all religions, you'll find in some way, all religions have that basic premise in common. Secondly, all religions believe that mankind is separated from that power, that there's some kind of a barrier or a gap that we're not there, that we're separated from that re reality. And barriers are keeping humanity stuck in the particulars of life. We're stuck in the mundane. We're stuck in this meaningless cycle. And if we can just break that and bridge this gap into what's real, well, then we'll have meaning in everything that we do. In other words, we're disconnected and we, we need something to mediate, to bridge that gap, to go between, some way to get there, to create that, connect, that connection. Now, that's what all religions have in common for the most part. But after that, after those two points, the diversity is insane on, what, on how they think that, that gap should be bridged. That's where things become very different on how we can overcome those barriers. Religions differ enormously about how this works. So you have religions who say that it's done through sacrifices and through offerings, right? Others emphasize a moral code, leading a good life, performing good works to bridge that gap into the ultimate reality. Um, some advocate for extreme self-denial, asceticism, a monastic type of a movement that you, you deny yourself, starve yourself to kind of get to that to uh, get beyond the flesh to what's real and to spiritual things. Others are big on rituals and traditions. Um, others will add more Eastern religions will advocate transforming your consciousness through meditation, prayer, incantations. They say that you are divine and the divine is with you. You just, the gap to bridge is that you need to come in, real in the reality of that. Figure it out, right? The more you realize that you are already. So, um, you need to be enlightened. It's called enlightenment. 
But even, but even that is implied the barrier or a gap of unenlightenment. There's, still a, there's, a, there's something wrong there. Everyone says that there's an ultimate reality or universal and that there's some sort of gap that needs to be bridged in order to connect that reality. And this is the default mode of every human heart, even secular Western people. This is usually where I get people say, well, what about atheists? What about people that don't believe in God? The modern progressive Washingtonian person would say, well, not really. Maybe that's true in the ancient world, but we modern people know better. We don't need a God anymore to explain the particulars. We start with ourselves, our own faculties, our own reason. We can figure it out to find, to find meaning. Everything that exists and everything that happens has a natural scientific explanation, and all I need is to find it. All I need is my senses to find it. There's no ultimate reality. Everything that happens is just some natural scientific factor. So we don't need God like the ancient people did to explain things. We don't need that because we know too much now. We don't need a belief in a divine universal to find meaning. We just need ourselves. Um, Here's what Lewis says in The Abolition of Man about that really interesting um, metaphor that he uses. He says, you cannot go on explaining away forever or you will find that you have explained away explanation itself. <laughs> you gotta love C.S. Lewis. Only he would come up with this. You cannot go on seeing through everything forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something else through it. It's good that you can see through a window, he would say, for example, but that's only because the garden is beyond it and it's opaque. But if you could see through everything, then everything would be transparent and, wholly trans- and a wholly transparent world would be invisible. You couldn't see. By seeing everything, you therefore could not see anything, he's saying. So when, you know, famous people like the um, famous French philosopher Michel Foucault says that all claims of God are uh, are an absolute truth are just power plays. All absolute claims of God and absolute truth are power plays. Well, that statement by its very own definition would be absolute, a power play. Or when Freud says that all claims of absolute truth and God are really just psychological projections to deal with your guilt and insecurity, then that claim, by its own definition, is just a psychological projection to deal with his guilt and insecurity. When the evolutionary biologist says, oh yes, yeah, your brain tells you that there's a God and that there's absolute truth, but that's really just hardwired chemical responses into you that help mankind survive, well then, So is that. You've explained away explanation itself. (laughs) That's that's the point. C.S. Lewis is brilliantly pointing out that the very need to explore and explain anything comes from a hardwired innate knowledge that there is something out there that we need to discover or in there that we need to dissect and find out to discover. There is a barrier or a gap that mankind needs to find out. We need to, we're on a quest for it. If there wasn't a belief in meaning and purpose, there would be no science. There is truth, and I need to find it, we say. We have that in us. It drives us forward as people. The whole reason for having a window is so you can see the realities on, on, on the other side of it. The modern person, in other words, is just as religious. Whether they believe it or not, they're looking for a stopping point that explains existence that explains things, something that, something that can be explained that gives meaning 
to everything else. There is a quest for it. Why are we the way we are? All sciences and all, uh, all disciplines of science really come to this. Why are we the way we are socially? Why are we the way we are culturally? Why are we the way, what does economics tell us about who we are as people? What are we anthropologically? Where do we fit? We're all on a quest. The modern person believes that mankind, for example, has certain responsibilities and duties in order for our species to keep evolving. Right? That's why there's so much moral outrage when these things don't happen to take care of our planet. In order for us to keep evolving, we need to, we need to take care of our house so we can keep growing healthy in it. Conquer disease through genetics. Protect human rights, they would say. Equal opportunity and equality for all people. This is what we need to advance our species through evolution. But don't you see? There are just, there are just more ways of bridging a gap. We're not there yet, but we need to get there. It's all, in other words, you, watch the, you read the news, you watch, uh, you watch the news, you read the paper, it's religious language. It's very religious. Just, especially, on this, the, especially all the talk of justice. It's a very theologically charged argument. Philosophically charged argument. Advancing the species through evolution is their meaning. It's what, it's, what the world, it's what the Western world worships. You can't get away from it. It's in every human heart. That's why religion around the world, by the way, is not weakening. It, it's getting stronger. You know that. That's, a, that's an absolute fact. Uh, you know, Nietzsche and Freud, uh, those guys predicted that religion would eventually fade away. And boy, has it that they were they're right about a, long, a lot of things. Boy, were they wrong about that. That is going. And this is, a, and this is a problem because religion brings enormous conflict, enormous division, tribalism. By very, it can't not. It has no choice but to bring division, war, tribalism, conflict. That's what religion does, as we're, I hope to show you. So we have a problem. Religion can't be wiped out. We've tried that already. And it just keeps growing and strengthening. So what do we do? What do we do about it? Our passage today, in the most unique possible way, says embrace Jesus because Jesus came not to start a new religion. Jesus came to end religion. It's a radical claim. How? Uh, look at verse 1. He says, now the main point of what we've been saying up to this point is this. We do not have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Oh, excuse me. We do have a high priest. Um, I knew that sentence sounded wrong. We do have, a, have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up, set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Okay, readers of the Hebrew Scriptures at this point, they would have immediately been struck by two things in these first two verses of chapter 8. Two things are very different about this priesthood that Jesus has than any other priesthood that they would have been familiar with. First, this priest is sitting on the right hand of the throne. That would have been, that's different than what they would have known from the Old Testament. The right hand of the throne was a position of authority, uh, the person who sat on the right hand of a throne was usually some kind of like a co-ruler or a co-regent 
a co-king, someone that had that kind of authority. And this would have been striking because in the Old Testament, you never had priests who were also rulers or kings, um, with the exception of Melchizedek. You never had a priest who was a ruler, and you never had a ruler who was a priest. But this tells us that Jesus is a priest king. He's both. So that would have stuck out to them. Secondly, the second thing that would have surprised them is that though he's a priest and though he's ministering, he's, seat, he's sitting down. This would have been unheard of. This might seem like something small to us, but it actually was, if you read the Old Testament, there's just simply too much to do for a priest to ever sit down. <laughs> it's just on and on. So many things that a priest was supposed to do. Now, with what we've just discussed about religion, Try to grasp, with that context, try to grasp what he's trying to say. Number one, it's saying that Jesus is the ultimate reality that everyone's actually looking for. That's the huge claim of, of the book of Hebrews and especially comes to a head in, the, uh, in this chapter. Jesus is the ultimate reality that everyone's looking for. He's the one that's on the other side of that barrier. He's the one on the other side of that gap, uh, Hebrews would say. And the whole book of Hebrews is about this. Let me just... Let me just read you from the the first pages of the book. He says, in these last days, this is from Hebrews 1, verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Who Who is the son? Whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Jesus is the ultimate reality. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Boom, right from the beginning. Jesus is the ultimate reality. Look at the the famous and very unique I am statements of Jesus Christ in the book of John. I am the resurrection and the life. Big statement. Very big statement. I am the bread of life. In other words, I am what sustains your life. I'm the food that you need to keep surviving and living. I am the light of the world. Before Here's a big one. Before Abraham was, I am. Um, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Again, the source of life. Jesus is boldly saying, I am the one on the other side of that gap. I'm, I am ultimate reality. It's me. And you need to understand, here's what makes Christianity extremely different than other religions because there is no other religious leader that says things like this. R- really, I'm not, I'm not speaking hyperbolically. Really, you can see. Jesus says bold things. The founders of other, especially the world religions, has said things like, I am a teacher pointing to the way. Or at most, I am, the te- I am the great teacher pointing to the great way. But Jesus shows up and says, I am ultimate reality in which all the other teachers and prophets and sages and, re- and spiritual people have been talking about this whole time. It's me. Jesus says stuff like that, (laughs) you know, and you can't, so when people come to me and say, well, you know, Jesus is just one, you know, he's on the same shelf as the the other great religious founders of the world religions, I think, okay, you've not read Jesus. You know, even in in obscure ways, I I can't remember exactly where it is because I didn't write it down, but there's that place in, um, I think it's in Luke where all the disciples are around Jesus and they're, you know, they're saying all these things that they saw when he sent them out and they did all these powerful things and they're kind of telling each other stories. You know, can you imagine if you went out, 
you all went out in groups and you saw some amazing things. You come out for a debrief and you say, oh my gosh, so this one guy comes up and Peter says this and unbelievably the evil fled from that person. And they're going around and all of a sudden, you know, Jesus is listening and all of a sudden Jesus says, oh yeah, that's crazy. I was there, you know, before time. I saw Satan fall from heaven. And you know, we read by it, we just kind of read by that. No one just talks like that. No religious founder talks like that. He's, he's in other words, even ma- he's not even making direct statements about his deity. He's living from the identity of who he is, of his deity. He's just speaking like that because that's who he is. Oh yeah, before I even created time, I, this one time, Satan fell from heaven. It was crazy, like lightning. It's wild. You know, that'd be like, okay, you win. It's a great campfire story. He is the, he's saying, I am the ultimate reality on the other side of the gap. Secondly, he's saying that he is the priest. In other words, he's also, he's also not only is he the reality on the other side of the gap, he's saying he's also the bridge that bridges the gap. He's also the mediator, the great high priest that makes it possible. His life and his death and his resurrection are the bridge over the expanse between you and God. Uh, Paul says it in Colossians. He says, "Once, once you were alienated from God. There's a gap and you were alien from him, right? He even goes further to say you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free of accusation. Think of that. He's cleansed you to where now you, are, you have access to that ultimate reality without anything separating you, without any blemish or not even an accusation against you. You can stand before the cosmic bench and say, who accuses me? Or like Paul said in Romans chapter eight, who, is, who condemns God's elect? It's Christ who died. There is therefore no condemnation, no accusation. There's nothing standing between you and God this morning. There's no more gap. There's nothing stopping you, nothing. Except maybe what you think. Um, every other religion says, do this, offer this, live like this, experience this, and that will send you over the gap. You do it long enough, patient enough. But Jesus says, I'm the God who at infinite cost to myself have come over the gap for you. I bridged the gap. I came to get you. I came on a mission. The gospel is about a divine intervention into human history through via Israel's history. And it's important that we <laughs> never forget that. Barriers, um, barriers and a gap. Um, these are barriers and gaps that our little weak religious observances would never be able to bridge anyway. He had to come. And that's why he seated. He seated because all the religious work is now obsolete. It's done. It's done. You can... Think of this, you can wake up every morning and you can say to yourself, you can look in the mirror, you can, whatever you need to do to remind yourself, you can say, I am finished. Do you, 
Do you, can you say that and believe it? Can you embrace it? Can you take it in? I'm done. There's nothing more for me to do to, to bridge that gap, to get over it to God. I am in a position of finished, to tell us die, it's done. Can you imagine if we lived like that? Because you know that's what drives us forward. You know that. That informs our economy. That informs your checkbook. That informs your behaviors. It is, if I could just gap, then. If I could just climb and get a promotion, then I would be able to rest. It's all, human behavior is all on that. If I could just then. It's very religious. Our economy is very religious because we're serving God's. If I could just then, if I could attain then, if she would notice me then, if he would notice me then, if my kids got better grades then, Every, without us knowing, it's the program of an old priesthood going on in the back of our minds, running in the back of our minds, if I then, 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 and Jesus is saying, it's done. Uh, we're done with it. We're done with that now. I've come to stop that. And that's why he's seated. Look at verse three. It says, every high priest is appointed to both offer gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for the one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that's a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The idea of this part of the passage is that Jesus is the final priest to end all priests. He's the final temple to end all temples. He's the final king to end all kings. He's the final sacrifice to end all sacrifices. It's done. Jesus is saying, I conclude the work of religion. That's what he's saying on the cross. Bringing God over to us or bringing us over to God, it's over. It's done now. I've concluded it. He would say, it's finished. Religion is finished. You don't need it anymore. It's obsolete. You can reject it when you see it showing up in your thought processes, in your behaviors. You can identify it. Don't let it skip by. Identify it and wholeheartedly, without any game or sh uh, shame or guilt, you can say, no, I'm not gonna. I feel you. I feel that desire to bridge the gap, but I know I can reject that feeling. You have the authority of God's word and the finished work of Jesus to say, I'm not operating on that hamster wheel anymore. Okay, this should be good news to everybody because don't you think, I mean, isn't it tiring? Just living in that space in your head, isn't it exhausting? If I just then, if I could just then, if I could just then. And you know, it's never enough, is it? Because there's always more you could just do and then. There's more you could give. 
You could show up more. You could be more faithful. You could stay longer after work. You could be more of a team player. You could, you could rise up in the, in the company. You, get, you could get another degree. You could, I mean, it just, it just never ends. You could talk to more people. You could witness to more people. You could share God with more people. You could read more of your Bible. You could pray more. And so many of us Christians, like the Christians here in, in Rome that he's writing to, this, this is the wheel they're on. It's just fueling everything. The whole book of Hebrews is saying, stand fast, don't go back to that, um, to that process. It's over. Jesus did not come to give you a religion. He came to give you a relationship, a new covenant relationship with God. Christianity does not bring you a religion. It brings you, listen, Christianity brings you a person, an actual person just like you are sitting there. Christianity brings you Jesus as an actual living, breathing person that we are to know just like I know you. In fact, Christianity, the gospel, is not just the end of religion, but it's the complete opposite of religion, if you think about it. Religion says, live like this, and God will accept you, right? And the gospel says, God gave his son Jesus to die so that now you're accepted, and now you can live like this. The order's incredibly, again, I want to remind you, Paul never condemns the practice of the law, just the confidence in it. If practicing the law and traditions makes you closer to, to a loving relationship with Jesus, my goodness, do it. Absolutely do it. Practice. But don't put your confidence in it as, if I could just then, if I could just then, if I could just then, on and on and on and on and on it goes. See, Religion says live like this and God will accept you. The gospel's totally different. Not just the end of religion, but total, complete, opposite contradiction of religion. So religion is the default mode of every human heart. I trust that I've shown you that. Jesus came to end it, and therefore, he brought us a radical new covenant relationship with God. Let me pick it up in verse six. There's a few more things I need to show you here. It says, but in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received, um, has received, Excuse me, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the, old, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that, with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. Here, listen to this. God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. In other words, he's finding problems with the old covenant, so God's saying, I'm gonna upgrade. Verse nine, he says, it will not be like the, like, the, uh, like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That's the Mosaic Sinai covenant as summarized in Deuteronomy 18. Okay, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain, and why? Because they, not that there was a problem with the covenant, track with me here, it's because they could not remain faithful to the covenant as I turned away from them, declares the Lord. 
This is the covenant, I w- and here's the new one, I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. That means intimacy, something the old covenant could not do. No longer will they, will they teach their neighbor to say to one another, know the Lord, because they will know me. We're talking about knowing a person. That's the goal. They will know me. From the, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness. Here's the difference. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Okay, so much to unpack here in just a few minutes. Here we go. What is a covenant? You see this word repeated again and again and again throughout this passage. We first of all, um, we don't have a really good word for it in English, actually. The closest word that comes to it is the word contract, okay? It's a binding contract, but that word falls extremely short. (laughs) There is really no um, synonym, I guess, for the word covenant in the English dictionary. A covenant is a relationship that is totally binding, totally intimate at the same time. It's not just legal, it's also relational at the same time. The best I think the, the closest we come to this is marriage. Marriage is something that you, it's, it's personal, it's relational, it's a commitment, but it's also between state and friends. That are, it's a legal contract. You sign a document. You're legally married, right? And at the same time, it's a beautiful commitment. A, a covenant is a relationship that's totally binding. And this is really tough because in our culture, we tend to pit personal versus legal, um, and they're both. That's not how the Bible sees it. In fact, the Bible would say the more intimate, the more delightful, the more vulnerable and personal, the more binding and more solemn and legal it ought to be. That's the way the Bible would say it. The more committed you are to a person, the more tingles you feel about a person, the more in love you are with a person, the more you should be able to put a commitment, a ratified communal commitment behind it. You want to know why? Because the Bible understands that those are the two ingredients that every, every relationship actually needs. Do you know that? Every relationship needs those. If your relationship to your friends or to your lover or to your employer doesn't matter, if your relationship to anyone is based on you both saying, I will be what I should be in this relationship if you agree to be what you should be in this relationship. If that's all it was, or I will be what I should be to you if and to the degree that you will be what you should be to me. As so many of our marriages and things are, are based on that. If that's what your relationship is based on, you're gonna find really quickly that your relationship will turn cold, you'll get distant, it will begin to unravel, it'll be like a shady business relationship. There will be no intimacy. There will be no intimacy at all because neither person wants to give up their independence. The reality is that there can be no intimacy without giving up autonomy. Do you know that? It's impossible. You cannot have intimacy without giving up yourself. There's no intimacy without binding yourself and to a sense, limiting yourself. That's what we talk about. This very much relates to the whole mask situation. We want intimacy in our church. That means we need to limit ourselves. 
are freely. I can't, we're not gonna, it would be against, it would destroy it and sully it if we made someone do it. Love says, I freely limit myself and give up what I deem to be important. The reality is that there can be no intimacy without it. On the other hand, if your relationship is based on you both saying to each other, I'm gonna put your needs ahead of my own needs and I'm gonna limit myself and bring myself regardless of your faithfulness to me. I'm, regardless of your faithfulness to me, I'm still gonna limit myself. I'm gonna do all of this whether I feel like it or not. Believe it or not, that is the only arrangement by which a relationship can thrive and be what it's supposed to be. You wanna know why? Because it has both commitment and vulnerability. Is it fraught with danger? Is it incredibly risky? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. But it's the only way a relationship can, th can thrive. In other words, the more committed a relationship, the more intimate it will get. Because you're risking. You're putting yourselves in the hand of another flawed human being with commitment to love them whether they catch you or not. Okay? It's not easy but it's beautiful. The more I see somebody saying to me, I'm going to be what I, ought, what I should be to you, even if you're not what you should be to me. Think of that. This is a, and whatever relationships you're in right now, I think maybe some of your marriages, relationships, um, friendships need this. Maybe a recommitment today. I'm going to be what I I'm gonna to strive to be what I know I need to be for you even when you're not for me. Oh, it takes, a, it, it takes bravery. Only and to the degree that you're willing to give up your independence can you know the freedom of an intimate relationship. The more binding, the more intimate. Okay, now that's, now what is the new covenant? What is the new covenant? Well, God talks about an old covenant or a binding intimate relationship with Israel, but this old covenant with the house of Israel was very religious. Did you notice that? It had religious tones to it. It had a lot of marks of religion on it. And I'll just point it out to you. Look at verse nine. Verse nine says, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. Remember what we just said? Because they didn't do what they should do. I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Very religious right there. That's religion, isn't it? You know what religion is. You set up conditions. It's a selfish business relationship with a deity. <laughs> That's what religion is. <laughs> it's a selfish business relationship with a deity. In religion, you come to church, you start to pray, you read your Bible, and here's what you're saying. I will be good, God. I'll be moral. I'll be a religious per the religious person I should be as long as you are blessing me and helping me make money and giving me good health. As long as you're doing what, I, what you should be doing for me, I will, I will pay forward to get you to do what you, you need to do for me. In other words, I'll do what I should be doing as long as and to the degree that you're doing what you ought to be doing, God, or what I think you ought to be doing. That's religion. It's tit for tat. It's quid pro quo. It's I'm doing this so that if I only then. It's a barter. It's a contract. And of course, religion is the deity looking down at the same time and saying, um, these people over here, 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 and here, they're doing what I want them to do. 
so I'm going to bless them. But these people, there, 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 and there, they're not doing what I don't want them to do, so I'm going to pull away from them. You see that in verse 9. That's religion. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, he says, I turned away from them. I see their sin, and I turned my face from them because they did not make good on their end of the bargain. But the new covenant is not that. It's not religion. Look, the new covenant in verse 12. Look what he says. I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. It's a complete, it's opposite of verse 9. Did you notice that? Verse 9 and verse 12 are opposites. They're not like each other. It's not an upgrade. They're completely different structures, completely different. See, in verse 9, it says, they sinned, so I turned my face away from them. But verse 12 says, I'm going to forgive their sins and remember them no more, even though they're sinning. I'm going to be faithful even when they're not. Completely different. In the old covenant, God sees our sins and turns away from us. In the new covenant, God sees us and turns away from our sin. Completely different. He even turns his memories away from our sins. I will remember your sins no more. The old covenant is basic religion. It's a conditional business relationship and it does not lead to anything intimate with God. But the new covenant is unconditional, therefore intimacy has a place to grow. Because you don't have to worry anymore if it's going away. You don't have to worry if you've broken it, if you've ruined it, if you went too far this time. You don't have to worry. You can know he's always there. Therefore, intimacy can grow. You can keep risking. You can keep being vulnerable. You can get back up and you can dust yourself off. Uh, we were talking about in our, our uh, home group last Thursday, it gives you a robust kind of Christianity where before you sin, what do you do? You're devastated when you sin and you make a mistake or you do that same thing again. You know what I'm saying? You make a commitment not to do it and then you actually do it. You go, oh, I've lost it all. I'm, I'm devastated. Where this is, no, no, I haven't lost it all. He's still there. He loves me. So when you sin, it's more of a, darn it. And you can get back up, dust yourself off, say, I'm sorry, Lord, and learn and move. Before, before I realized this in my relationship with Jesus, my relationship was just, you can imagine, like a, just a roller coaster ride. There are times where I thought I was doing good, and I was just like, whoo, I am, I am freaking awesome right now. Jesus, I know you love me right now because I'm lovable, you know, because I just did that. Right? This false sense of spirituality. Or on the down, it, I crap, I can't believe I just did that. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. You know, it was just up and down thing. Now it's getting more and more steady because I know it's unconditional. So my intimacy with him is growing. How can it be unconditional? How can God just say, even if you sin, I will never turn my face, face from you. I'll only turn from your sins. How can he do that? Here's how it can happen. A covenant relationship says, I will be what I should be even when you're unfaithful to me. When did God say that he would be faithful to you and me even when we're not faithful to him? When did he say that? On the cross. That's what the cross, that's the message of the cross. God adjusted to us 
cosmically and infinitely on the cross. He adjusted to our sinfulness in a way. God said, I'm going to be faithful to you and love you even when you're not faithful to me. And you know what that cost him? On the cross, God the Father enacted the curse of verse 9, turned away from his son instead of you and me. Jesus got verse 9 so that you and I could get verse 12. Are you seeing how he's a great mediator? On the cross, Jesus Christ was forsaken. The covenant curse of verse 9 was upon Jesus so that we could get the new covenant of unconditional love. He got the covenant curse so that we could get, get covenantal blessing. Remember that we said the more binding a relationship, the more intimate it can be. Remember that? The more binding and the more intimate it should be. Jesus bound himself to you on that cross. There could be no more binding than that. You are secure in Christ. And when you realize that God came and said to you, I'm going to be faithful to you, even when you're not faithful to me, that means we can treat church that way too. See, um, this doesn't just stay like in your own little personal individual life. This will start, when you start to understand this and live from this, it will start to be the way society works for you. It means we can treat church that way. We can walk into church and look around and say, I'm going to come to this church. Um, well, I guess we won't say, I'm going to come to this church as long as it's meeting my own needs. <laughs> right? I'll be friends to you brothers and sisters as long as you're meeting my needs and doing what I think is right. But if you're not meeting my needs, I'm just going to go someplace else. That's religion. That's religion. Religion says, I will be to you to the degree that you are what you should be to me. But the new covenant creates covenantal people, um, uh, what scholars call a cruciform community. In other words, a community that's based on the actions of the, of the cross, the, re, the cross and resurrection of Jesus, dying to self so that life can come. In other words, the cross isn't just a one-time event that saved us in the past. As, as Paul said, I take in into my, the cross into myself as a way of living. Sure, I'm gonna die to myself. I could do this and I could do that and I, could do, I have freedom to do ever, anything I want, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna put myself under so that life can come to this community. So how do you know if you're in, in a new covenant relationship with God? Well, let me ask you this. Do you know him? Do you know God? Again, look at verse 11. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. It doesn't say they will know more about me. They'll be theological experts. No, they will know me, a person. Have you, have you experienced his love on your heart as an overwhelming encounter from a real, actual person? That's what you need to ask yourself. Parents, that's what your kids need to have. It's great that you teach them the gospel. That's wonderful. But you need to pray that they have an actual encounter with Jesus Christ. You guys, it's so important. I spent 17 years as a youth pastor 
challenging kids that came into my youth group thinking they were already Christians. And it was my job to poke holes in that until they actually had and they realized they needed an actual encounter for themselves with Jesus Christ. That's what we pray for as parents. Noble six, almost seven, he could fill out a test on the gospel right now and he could pass it. I pray every day fervently for that young man that God would meet him the way he met me. Do you know God? Do you know him? When you know God, those doctrines become living, bright realities and they console and comfort and change the way you look at life and the way you live life. Have you ever had the sense that God is taking you Have you ever had the sense that God is your loving father taking you out to the woodshed for some good discipline? Because he loves, not out of anger, (laughs) or not not because he's mad, because he knows you need some discipline. That's a relationship. It's a relationship. Or is God just someone you believe in? Someone you say your prayers to occasionally? That's religion. Intimacy is the mark of knowing if you're a Christian. Intimacy, not how well you follow the rules. Do you know him? Okay, last point. I I have to get practical here. He says, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. I have to point this out because of where we're at in our culture right now. In the ancient world, um, religiously, there were barriers everywhere. Barriers mark religion. Division has to come with religion. It has no choice not to. Division, when you see division, infighting, tribalism, you know religion is there. You know it. And then, you know, in the ancient world, okay, let's just take the temple. There was a place for Jews, a place for Gentiles. There was a place for women, a place for men. There was a place for, you know, stages of holiness, for priests. For, there was, everyone was divided, Everyone. And then Jesus comes along and Matthew writes this incredible genealogy, this family tree of Jesus. And you've got women as well as men. You see foreigners, you see Jews. There's prostitutes and cheats. There's also moral and really religious people. They're all there in the line of Jesus. The first Matthew, the first gospel in your, chronologically in your, in your Bible. Literarily, historically, Mark was probably the first one written, but still, Matthew, the first one you see of Jesus, he writes this incredible genealogy to bring a point. They're all there. This is different, completely different. If you understand the difference between religion that says, if you live this way, then I will accept you. This is why religion leads to conflict. Religion is based on the idea that you are, that you are bridging the gap, that you're the one doing it. Therefore, if you base your identity on being a hardworking person, for example, you have no choice but to despise what you deem as lazy people. Religion is present in your life, if that's your identity. If you base your identity on being an open-minded person, then you're going to despise perceived bigots. You have to. It's religion. It's going to divide you. If you think of yourself as a liberal that's doing everything right, you're going to despise those archaic, regressive, Republican dum-dums. If you're 
conservative, and that's, and that's your identity. It, it's not just what you practice, but you are confident in it as your identity. You're going to despise those, those crazy, liberal, far-left, secular, godless people. Do you see what's going on? It's division everywhere. It's in our politics. It's, in, it's built into our culture. It's on the side of the, the whole Black Lives Matter thing, the blue lives versus black lives. It's all there. It's all there. Division. Hatred. It's, it's what's behind racism. It's what's behind it all. It's fueling it. Likewise, even if you consider yourself a good moral person, you're going to look down on those that don't have the same beliefs as you. If you wear a mask and you're proud about that, you're going to look down on those that don't. If you don't wear a mask, you're going to look down on those who do. It points to something deeper operating in your heart. You see what I'm saying? But if you believe you're saved by sheer grace, then look what the verse says. From the least to the greatest, it says, there is no difference. We're all equal. We're lost We're equally lost, whether we're religious, moral, prostitute, drug dealer, slave, or free, male or female, addict, or or a moral paragon. We're all lost. We're all equal. There's nobody can say anything about anyone else. We're all equally lost. We're all equally loved. I remember Nicole and I used to do, uh, we used to, and we used to live in Palm Springs, and we used to go out and minister to homeless people in the secret fort that we found. Anyway. This one, I'll never forget this one homeless guy said, that guy over there, he's a drunk. Don't talk to him, he's a drunk. And I, and I remember saying to him, I said, you're drunk right now. <laughs> and he goes, but that guy is really bad. I'm better than him because I'm not as drunk as him, even though I'm drunk right now. You see, it's operating in our soul. This is, but this, the new... This is completely egalitarian. It destroys the thing in religion that leads to conflict and war. Do you understand that? Have you felt that? If if you find yourself looking down on others or looking down on yourself, not by way of condemning yourself, you can just know that religion is still, at some degree, alive in your heart. And you need to apply the gospel more. I will be their God and they will be my people. It doesn't say that they will, I will be their God and they will be my persons. Again, this is experienced in a new humanity, which is what church is. That's what we are. The people of God is this new humanity. We're a foreshadow of the new heavens and the new earth. When all injustice will be done away with, no more poverty, no more disease, we should be a taste to this world of what heaven will be like and how we conduct ourselves, and how we're together, and how we show ourselves to the community. Okay, we did a whole chapter. Thanks for bearing with me. 